This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton-wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? Out there somewhere is like, you know, Jack Armstrong, Superman. It's all just as real as you are, and I am. (laughs) And the Lord and the angels in heaven, how about them? What do you think, they're the figment of somebody's imagination? Nobody makes up anything. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind. In living color on WTDR. Wow. Some of the scenes you will witness may appear to border on fantasy. Look. Yes. There's the images. Everybody quiet. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I said God. I can't remember when I've been so moved. How do you like that? Why, preposterous. Thank you very much. My guest is Rebecca Martinez. She's a Chicana writer and community organizer whose work explores the intersections between collective healing, systems design, and expanded states of consciousness. She's a student of transformative justice, emergent strategy, and somatic abolitionism. She's the founder and executive director of the ALMA Institute, a nonprofit education institution that equips students from marginalized communities to become legal psychedelic facilitators. She worked on the Measure 109 campaign that produced the Psilocybin Services Act, the first ever state program to provide community-based legal access to psilocybin services. She served as an advisor to the National Psychedelics Association, the American Psychedelic Practitioners Association, and the Plant Medicine Healing Alliance. And she's the author of a new book we'll be talking about, Whole Medicine, A Guide to Ethics and Harm Reduction for Psychedelic Therapy and Plant Medicine Communities. Rebecca, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be here. So to begin with, I just want to share that I cried while reading the preface Mm -hmm. of the book. It felt like coming home, hearing your approach. I just felt so Mm. 
deeply in alignment with what you were describing about your approach and orientation to all of this. Mm. Oh, I'm so touched by that. That's the first I've heard that. I, I know I cried when I wrote it and cried again when I read it, but it's wonderful to know that some of that carried through. And this book was an eye-opener for me. I thought I was pretty aware of and sensitive to the areas of concern surrounding psychedelics and psychedelic healing, but it's just so easy to cause harm, even with the best intentions. Mm-hmm. So it just reinforced, again, the necessity of doing deep self-examination and continuing to learn and to have a deeper and ongoing evolving deeper understanding of ourselves and our shadow issues that can trigger us and cause us to cause harm in the world around us. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, you know, one piece I was really trying to convey with this book, I wanted to kind of bring everyone to the table and talk about things like risk and, and potential areas of concern without framing it as though, oh, these people over there, the people with bad intentions do harm and the rest of us are in the clear, but really to kind of level and include myself and all of our readers in that examination around where are these aspects or potential misguided motives or just things I'm not aware of making me someone who could potentially do harm, even if that's the last thing I want to do. And so I feel like it was really important to not come from like a shaming or blaming sort of mentality, but really to rally everyone who reads and who who is involved in this field to take on some piece of that responsibility so that we can hold it collectively and create more safety. And this really is a very young field in our Western culture. So there's, Mm. there's a vast realm of unknown for many of us, for most of us, probably for all of us. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think part of the tension we have now is figuring out how to frame something that is ancient in so many ways and is the sacramental medicine and how to reconcile really ceremonial practices with this completely different way of working, which is the sort of individual therapeutic model that we see mostly in the West. And that's not to say it's not possible, but there are some inherent tensions there. And it's something that I kind of live and breathe in the work that I do is living with those tensions and not trying to appropriate or even replicate certain ceremonial models that may not be the right fit while also honoring the deep knowledge that has come through generations that has so much to teach us and really to help keep us safe, but also to help us be in good relationships with the medicines. So I'm excited to be on that journey with others in the field, because there's just still so much to learn. And I think you said it so well, we all have so much to learn and need to have that learner's mindset, regardless of how long we've been practicing ourselves or or with other people. Yeah. And we each have our own unique way of integrating what we learn around this and what we experience, because some of what we learn and experience is not from the outside world. And Mm -hmm. It can be really tricky for those of us in our Western culture to really trust that enough to make it an integral part of our lives. Mm, Absolutely. And I think that you've touched on something so important. And I, I try to address it early on in the book, which is not everyone may agree 
But I know for me and many in my communities, there is a belief that working with entheogenic compounds isn't just altering one's perception, but actually allowing us to access other realms and other planes of existence. And that can be in many ways what makes these experiences so profound and beautiful and grounding when we sort of settle back into our bodies and our default realities, so to speak. But at the same time, it, it can be really challenging to integrate those because we don't have a really solid frame for how to understand mystical experiences or how to relate to those in this world and society that we find ourselves in. And add to that the sort of risk of, you know, cult-like groups and mentalities, this sort of loss of any sort of external shared reality. And I know I live with that tension, which is how do we validate that each person's experience is valid and, and true for them in many ways and be really, really cautious around not taking every insight that we hear from the medicines or every thought that comes to us as ultimate truth and as reality that we should construct our entire lives around. You know, I'm really in that tension myself and I'd be interested how you relate to that. Yeah, that is such a fascinating dilemma because I think in our early stages, what we're learning and interpreting and filtering through our programming can be confusing and even misleading or misguiding mm. in the sense that we have these conditioning like filter overlays that kind of corrupt the message or mm -hmm. learning that we're receiving. And there's so much work that we need to do to, at least in the beginning, to, to recognize our conditioning, our egoic elements and shadow mm. elements that tend to cloud our vision. And then of course, to learn to see past it or silence it so that we can be fully present with the medicines and with the voice of the medicines and the spirits that they're imbued with. Mm. Because those are things that are natural to us if we look to indigenous traditions. It's just we've been conditioned, like from birth, we've mm. been conditioned out of it by our culture. Mm hmm. Oh, this is just such a huge, huge piece. I know I was kind of sitting with this dilemma as I was working on the book because I got to the point where I imagined that someone reading would say, okay, well, how do I discern what's my voice and my filtering and conditioning? How do I discern what the things are that maybe I, I don't want to be amplifying through these medicines? And what is really at the heart of, you know, I don't want to say capital T truth, but but something deeper, the thread that runs through those deeper insights that are more universal. And one place that I've landed, and I, I really struggle to make generalizations, but I know for me, one of my kind of barometers of assessing is, is this an insight that's just coming from me for my own personal benefit or, you know, self-validation, or is this an insight really worth moving towards? And I mentioned it somewhere in the book, but it's this question of, does this belief or value align with life? Does it align with the thriving and flourishing of life? And for me, I think that that can translate across many sort of spiritual traditions. And even those who don't practice a spiritual tradition, just 
you know, to get beyond this sort of idea of good and bad, but really like, is this destructive in nature or is it generative really? And I think there might even be holes in that logic, but it's, it's been something that's brought me some comfort. Yes, I totally, totally agree. And some people will equate the term life in that equation with love. And you share the definition of spiritual being love in action. So this orientation towards life is synonymous with an orientation towards love and being open to love, both Mm. receiving it and also being a channel for it, especially in doing this kind of work with other people. Mm. Absolutely. I couldn't say it better myself. Thank you for that. Let's get into your vision of what you call whole medicine and your approach to working with psychedelics and also your hopes and concerns within this rapidly expanding field. And also, I guess, to begin how you got involved in all of this. Sure. Let's see. Um, Becoming involved with psychedelics was actually quite a surprise for me. I was raised in a religious household us that was Pentecostal Christianity and that overlay with growing up in the 90s when you know dare drug abuse resistance education was in our schools and the just say no era of the anti-drug campaign was full-fledged and so I was afraid of substances until my teens and it wasn't until my mid-20s when I had at that point gone through some really big life changes. I I had a small son who was three. I was going through a divorce from a wonderful person I had met during Bible college and was essentially re-examining my entire life and asking some really hard questions about what I believed about the world and the nature of my life and my purpose. And I really had to peel back a lot of layers and kind of start over. And at that time, I moved into an urban farm community just south of Portland. And I was living there with several other families and there was orchards and there was this big tree house in the back. It was a big leaf maple tree with a double decker tree house. And the place was just sort of imbued with magic. And there was a mother there who was an herbalist and she was learning how to hold space for people with mushroom ceremonies. And she offered and said, you know, would you like to receive a a ceremony. I'm still learning. I'm an apprentice, but if you're okay with that, you know, I'd love to share this with you. And I just immediately said, yes, I didn't hesitate. And I didn't know what to expect. I just knew that I was seeking. And I knew for me, the fact that the mushrooms come from the earth and that they are living and I would argue intelligent beings I knew that it could only be beneficial for me to meet them. And so I had a mushroom experience with them. It's about eight years ago now. And they did not go easy on me. But it was still to this day, one of the most profound days of my life. And I write a little bit about that experience in the book. But really what it enabled me to do in my life was to go back and sort of go into what I consider like the dark rooms of my soul (laughs) and all the places that I had hidden things away that were too painful or too heavy or too confusing to reckon with. 
And suddenly they were less scary for this period of time. And so I was able to contend with things that have had happened in my family around peace violence and two immediate family members being incarcerated. I was able to reckon with my relationship with my mother and her family line. And there were insights that came that day. But really what I found was that the weeks and months following were of the utmost importance because an insight is just an insight (laughs) until you find a way to weave it into your life, your habits, your thought patterns, your ways of moving through your days. And that's when I really started to see what I would call the benefits of having ceremonial space with mushrooms. I started to notice that the ways that I was relating to painful memories and to family systems were shifting. And I could see other family members that were still sort of caught in the cycle or this loop. And as the years went on, it became more and more apparent. You know, I was asking, why is there less of a charge here for me around some of these really painful things? And I have to credit it with not just that ceremony, but ongoing practice and coming back again and again to what I see as kind of like the altar, just coming back to center. And for me, there's always this energy of sitting at the base of a big tree and just getting really quiet and listening and staying there for as long as I need to for all of my chatter and for all of the things that I've concerned myself with to kind of go quiet for me to really reorient to what's most important. And so for me, mushrooms have been at the heart of that. I've been fortunate enough to work with many substances over the years and have been really privileged to have certain protections and environments in which I could do that safely. Not everyone has those privileges. And so, yeah, I went from sort of the ceremonial frame to really embracing that there are so many ways people might engage with psychedelics and mind expanding substances and I don't necessarily frame one as more important than the other, but really, I just feel strongly that people do have a right to explore their consciousness and to do so safely and and with support if they feel so called. So that's kind of a long way of saying how I personally got into it. I'd be happy to share how that ended up in me working professionally with mushrooms as well. Sure. Yeah. So a couple of years after that initial mushroom experience in the treehouse. I attended a Paul Stamets talk. And for those who don't know, Paul Stamets is a very well-known and beloved mycologist. He's sort of a mushroom in human form. (laughs) I think I've heard him refer to himself as. And I went to see him speak here in Portland. And before the presentation, he said, I want to introduce to you a measure that I feel very strongly about. And he proceeded to introduce measure 109 which is a psilocybin legal access program that a couple of therapists in Oregon were trying to get passed. And this was in 2018. And I was watching that talk and I just was struck by the weight of what was happening in that room and and struck by the fact that there was no state program like this and that it was happening in the state where I was born and raised. And at a time that I was actively engaging with mushrooms on my own path. And I leaned over to my friend and I said, I'm going to work for them. I don't know when or how, but I want to be a part of this. So fast forward, I ended up getting hired as the volunteer and event coordinator for the Measure 109 campaign. And for anyone who's been a part of campaign life, it's grueling and demanding to say the least. But I had the opportunity to travel around the state of Oregon and we would have these gatherings and meet 
dozens, if not hundreds of people who were so passionate about psychedelics as a vehicle for healing and for growth and really wanted to see this measure come to pass. And one thing that I noticed was just how homogenous this sort of social scene was that was supporting this measure. And that wasn't necessarily because there were not other people who were interested or who might be supportive of it, but because there was just sort of this insulation, I think in large part due to the baggage of the drug war, which has resulted in a lot of communities of color staying far away from substances or anything associated with the risk of being criminalized, as well as just stigma and some of the sort of baggage of the 60s and 70s and the messaging around what psychedelics could do to your brain and just sort of that lingering fear. And I got to see that firsthand because I was out, you know, collecting signatures on the sidewalks and training volunteers how to do that correctly. And so when Measure 109 ultimately did succeed, it was during the pandemic and the measure passed. And I remember I was on a Zoom call because it was 2020. We had a campaign election watch party on Zoom. And when it passed, I felt at once so elated and so unsure. I wasn't sure if a measure like this, which is a highly regulated access program, it creates these licenses for people to open service centers and for people to become trained as facilitators and to become licensed as mushroom growers. I wasn't sure if that was the best first step in decriminalizing because it creates this small island of legality, as my friend Ismail Ali says, an island of legality and a sea of criminality. And I recognize that the costs were just going to be astronomical for people to access experiences like the one I had gotten to have for free at my home a few years earlier. And so I had a bit of a soul searching period. And I came to believe that in a way, because I had been a part of passing this measure, I felt I had a duty to the public to try to do everything within my power to make sure that this program would be accessible and culturally relevant and fairly rolled out and equitable for the communities who stand to benefit. And so that's what I've been doing ever since. I've had two organizations one was a, a podcast, actually, and a sort of a public education hub. And the second is the nonprofit that I founded and I run now called Alma Institute. And we became a, a licensed career school in Oregon. And we train psilocybin facilitators, particularly from underrepresented communities, to become trained and equipped to work with psychedelics ethically and safely and in a culturally responsive way. And so to date, we've been able to graduate about 35 people. Most of them have had scholarships and now they're in the field and sort of finding their way and deciding whether to work at service centers, which ones to work at. And yeah, that's the work I get to do day in and day out. So it sounds like since you've turned out 35 graduates from this program, that this is a slow and dedicated process that you don't have like a factory conveyor belt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's funny that you use that analogy because I've used the same one. You know, I've said before, I think to journalists who they always want the numbers. And I've said, you know, we're not a facilitator factory. And that's by design because the nature of this work is so vulnerable and so profound that 
I'm not confident we can train hundreds of people at a time, at least with the limited resources and, and staff that we have, and be able to track them and mentor them enough to ensure that they're ready when we give them that certificate to, to begin their practice. And we've seen other programs, not just in psilocybin, but, you know, in MDMA and ketamine and other modalities, we've seen programs who really are like pumping out certificates. And that is a risk. There are inherent risks with moving that way. And I, I know there are economic pressures. We feel that as well. We have to have enough people enroll in order to be able to afford to have a training. But at the end of the day, none of that matters if we're not upholding a standard of training and skill building and ethics in order to make sure that this field can roll out in a way that's sustainable and healthy. So how long is the training process? And do you continue to mentor and even perhaps supervise or oversee them in the field during their early years? Because I'm sure you're, you're well aware that in the traditional training of psychedelic healers or shamans, there's usually an apprenticeship that can last mm -hmm. five to 10 or more years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that you brought this piece in. And this is kind of one of those tensions that I was referring to earlier, which is how do we take the learnings and the sort of models that traditional communities know work well, and how do we find a way to incorporate those into a structure that isn't really designed for that? And so the short answer is yes. We actually, with this cohort, we have our first meeting tomorrow to sort of reconvene. We've had a couple months since everyone graduated. And when we train students, their core training is about seven months. And so there's a couple of intensives in person where we do a lot of the role playing and, and group experiences. And then we have classes on the weekends on Zoom. It's a lot of sort of active learning and experientials. And then the students have their own practicum where they come to a licensed service center and they participate in a psilocybin ceremony first as a participant. So they can really experience that themselves. Many, if not all of the students have previous experience, but we want them to experience it in a similar context to how they'll be working. And then also as a support person. So that's the sort of first tier of supervision, which is they're not the licensed facilitator in the room, but they are practicing attuning to the needs of the person who's going through the journey. And usually it's simple things like getting them tissues or water or being available if they need you to write something down for them. And we really see that as the very beginning of their learning because everything, all the didactic learning, everything that you can read in books and discuss in a class is all theory until you are actually sitting with someone who has consumed an entheogen and is embarking on a soul quest. <laughs> and so when we enroll students, we ask them to commit to a three-year community of practice, which is what we have begun now. So there's a handful of ways that that will manifest, but one is these sort of ongoing peer consultation groups so that people can be learning from one another and from their mentors and sharing about the actual, you know, with confidentiality agreements, of course, but sharing about the, the learnings they're having and experiences that they need more guidance on as they work with participants. One other piece that has been a part of the vision for Alma since the very beginning is to have our own service center that functions as 
a learning space for new graduates with supervision. And so we're actually in the process now of pursuing a building here in Portland and pursuing all of the licensure that's needed and raising the funds needed for the startup costs to open our own service center. So I'm really hoping that we can create a model where apprenticeship is the norm. And essentially, we can help to do this sort of filtering and and match participants who are lower risk with newer facilitators, but always ensuring that there's someone on site who's a supervisor who's available to those facilitators as needed, people who can assess for emergency situations, which are very, very rare, but we just want to be extra cautious, you know, and prepared for anything. And really, while I would love to have five to 10 years with people, we understand that the world here in Portland, Oregon, doesn't exactly move that way. So my desire is to create an environment where people want to stay engaged and see the benefits of staying engaged well into their careers, even as they start to have held space for dozens, hundreds, even more than hundreds of people, really just always reinforcing that sort of learner's mentality and creating spaces where that can be the norm. So to be clear, what are you training facilitators to do in the psychedelic realm? Because there's psychedelic therapy, there's psychedelic sitting and things in between. Mm -hmm. This is a really important distinction. So we do not train psychedelic therapists to do psychedelic therapy. And this is something that we also unpack in the book. Psychedelic therapy, in most cases, is a more directive approach. So if someone is a psychedelic therapist, they'll often be working with a client as a a normal talk therapist in advance of any sort of medicine session. And the role of that session is to help deepen some of the work that's already being done in that therapeutic relationship. And then, of course, the integration that comes afterwards of weaving that in. There's a handful of reasons that we don't teach that. One is that There's plenty of training programs that are for people with advanced degrees. And in fact, that's part of why we formed Alma Institute, because there are so many people who are really skilled at holding space and being really trustworthy for people who are in vulnerable states who haven't had the ability to earn advanced degrees or practice therapy or social work. And so we wanted to create inroads to teach the core skills. So what we teach at Alma Institute is psychedelic facilitation. That's the term that Oregon uses, but really it is the role of, it's more than a sitter. It is kind of in between. It's the role of the person holding space. So the person is there to protect the space and to be available for the person who's journeying as their sort of tether to this realm. And so a lot of what we teach is around scope of practice, because this is a sort of new distinction in the field, there are going to be participants who come in and want you to give them life advice or want you to make meaning of the things that they're seeing and feeling. And so a lot of the role of that facilitator is to help build the participants innate sense of confidence in their own inner healer and to essentially offer a warm abiding presence to offer a mirror to reflect back what is being heard and shared. And essentially, I almost think of the role more as like a doula. If anyone's given birth, you know, the doula isn't the midwife, they're not necessarily 
checking your vitals and making directives, but they're there to come alongside you in solidarity and available for whatever you need. And so that's really what we're teaching folks. The term hold space can be a little bit intangible for folks, but that really is what we're teaching. There's the energetic aspects of creating a space. There's the relational aspects of building rapport and trust so that someone can be confident letting their guard down and exploring those dark rooms of the soul and know that they'll be able to come back safely. And then, of course, we teach our facilitators a lot around ceremony and the importance of ceremony, but also how to co-create an environment with their participants that feels supportive for that person's spirituality or not spirituality, you know? So we really try to avoid being dogmatic in that way. And then, of course, one of the biggest pieces that we're still working out is how to refer and how to know when someone's not a good fit. If someone really needs psychedelic therapy, it may not be the best idea to be their facilitator as an entry-level facilitator. They may need more support than you're prepared to give. And so that's a big piece around harm reduction is really not getting in waters that you're unprepared to swim in, so to speak. Mm. So that makes me think of how you prepare or your approach to how you prepare for a psychedelic session with somebody to create the kind of safety that's necessary and also to establish whether the facilitator is a good fit and in alignment with the journeyer or client. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, every center will do this differently. And I will say that the state did not provide a whole lot of guidance around what happens before the preparation session. So, you know, there are benefits and drawbacks to that. For us, it means that we have a lot of leeway in how we bring people into the point at which they would get connected with the facilitator and start moving towards having a mushroom session. The people at our team who will be doing most of the sort of navigation calls, we'll call them, they're both psychedelic therapists who are actively practicing therapy and have been for many years. And that's on purpose because it's a lot to ask a new facilitator who maybe is coming from a completely different field to gauge in a 30 or 60 minute call with someone where they are emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and what they need. That relationship building is important, but there are other sort of contraindications that we have to watch for earlier on before we can get into the really juicy work of preparing for ceremony. It's the question of, is this the right modality for this person? Do we have the facilitators or facilitator who can meet their needs? And is it the right timing? You know, timing is a lot. It may be that there may not be stability in a person's life in the way that's needed to really support the benefits of psychedelic sessions. And so helping the person navigate those questions for themselves, but also as a facilitator, finding where your boundaries are and your parameters. So if all of those are sort of green lights and that checks out, then begins, well, hopefully I wouldn't say begins as a matter of fact, that I think the ceremony And the journey begins so far before someone ever actually takes mushrooms. But the rapport building and finding a facilitator who's a good fit, you know, we did a survey recently and we found that the majority of people who responded who want to access psilocybin services but haven't yet 
Aside from the cost, the next most common reason they haven't is because they said they haven't found a facilitator who shares their lived experience or a service center that can meet their needs. And so we asked some follow-up questions. And for many people, this shared lived experience had to do with racial and ethnic identity, immigrant status, gender and sexual identity, and language. And so those are things we're really looking to bring to the field and understanding that those really are huge factors that shape the space and shape the rapport that you're going to build with someone. Sometimes there's no amount of talking that two people can do to build rapport that could replace what it means to have a shared identity. And so that's something that we know is important for many people. It may not be important for everyone, but we really want to be able to offer that as a piece, you know. And then beyond that, really, we really strive to have the whole process be very participant-centered. So getting an understanding of some of the questions that I pose in the book, especially in the inner work and the discernment chapters around what brings you here? You know, what are you hoping to find through a psilocybin experience? Are you aware of the potential challenges, you know, that could come with this? Sometimes I say, you know, are you prepared for things to get harder before they get better? And there's not always space for that in someone's life. So really understanding just the orientation that the person has, but Once we get into there, that I think is where the facilitators really shine because that's what they've really learned is the relationship building, being accountable to the power dynamics, really establishing informed consent and making clear agreements with the participants about what will and won't happen during the session so that we're removing as many obstacles as possible to that participant having the session that they need and want to have. And everybody has different needs and different boundaries that they need to clarify and be able to express. Could you talk about how trauma can get in the way of our ability to even be aware of what our boundaries are or or the boundaries that we need and our ability to even feel what's going on in our own bodies and Mm -hmm. to be able to know what to give consent to and what not to give consent to. Like there's the issue of touch, like supportive touch, where some people might have an adverse reaction to having anyone touch them, while another person might desperately need to be touched in a reassuring way. Mm. And how those kind of ground rules and boundaries need to be clearly laid out to support not only the client, but also the facilitator so that they know what's safe and expected of them and so that they can feel comfortable and safe in the relationship. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the biggest pieces where there is so much healing potential and so much risk. We talk a lot about this at Alma Institute, which is just the power of touch And because touch can be so powerful, it also can do a great deal of harm or a great deal of benefit. And so much, I would say almost everything comes down to the context. And so, you know, going back to where we started, trauma, which I'm so glad that we're beginning to have a more collective understanding and normalize the acknowledgement of trauma as a very real force in not only us individually, but in our communities and in 
society. You know, we can see trauma playing out on a global scale as much as we can see it in our day-to-day lives. And, you know, when something traumatic happens, that is almost always in some way a boundary violation. So being on the receiving end of any sort of harm or any sort of, you know, maybe there's some things where like a natural disaster, it'd be hard to pinpoint exactly what the boundary violation is. But at some point, something happens that you did not or could not consent to. And because of that, there's all sorts of very amazing adaptive mechanisms that our bodies, minds and spirits have in order to protect us, you know, in our tissues in our nervous systems in our thought patterns around how we perceive the world, we can develop these kind of armors that are designed to prevent what has happened that has caused us harm from happening again. And I think, you know, most people could identify where their defense mechanisms are. And we sometimes frame those as a negative thing. But one thing that my therapist has been so amazing about has been really helping me see that we need to honor those defenses and those protector parts that have been there, especially since we were young and vulnerable to keep us safe. And at the same time, if and when there is more safety in one's environment, and when the risk of harm is not present, those defense mechanisms can be very, very limiting. And they can prevent us from, as you mentioned, not only from connecting with those around us and from the outside world, but also they can inhibit our connection to ourselves. Because imagine this sort of hypervigilant, constant script that's running in the background all the time. Those thought patterns around the world being dangerous, around getting close to people not being safe, or whatever those narratives are, they're reinforced again and again, if they're not sort of intervened on. And it's really important when working with people to go very, very slowly at the beginning, largely because you don't know immediately meeting someone, what their life has been up until that point, you can't spot trauma on a person. (laughs) Sometimes maybe you can but largely it takes relationship and trust for people to share certain things. And there can even be cases where people take a psychedelic, maybe they're at a music festival or a group gathering and they take a substance thinking it will be a fun time. And what happens is some deep rooted trauma or memory can emerge. And that person is then left reckoning with some very deep healing processes that need to happen in an environment that's not at all designed to support that. So that's one thing that we want to prevent. And so because of that, we try to move at Alma Institute and me personally from a very trauma aware and trauma attuned orientation, which is, first of all, validating that trauma is real and it it shapes us, you know, it's like, let's start there. But then also creating space to make agreements that are aware of how traumatic experiences shape what feels good for you and supportive and what doesn't, you know, and in so many ways, the heart of healing, in my view, is restoring that agency to people and restoring that sense of choice. Because having choice is really what's the most liberating thing. If your choice is taken away from you, then your freedom is taken away from you. And so that needs to be woven into the entire process from start to finish around really letting the individual articulate and oftentimes supporting them and identifying and articulating what would work best for them. 
And, you know, to be more specific, one piece that we've talked about a lot is the agreements that you set in the preparation period in the sort of sober state. Those agreements can always be tightened up further when someone's in a session. So maybe there's an agreement, maybe someone says, yeah, it might feel supportive while I'm going through the journey for you to hold my hand or to put a hand on my shoulder. And so maybe the facilitator and client will make an agreement that that's an option, but that the participant needs to ask for it. Or maybe they'll agree that the facilitator can offer if it seems like that would be supportive and they can practice offering and then the participant saying no in a normal preparation session. That piece is really important because if you can't say no, then you really can't honor and attune to your boundaries when you're in a vulnerable state. And so that muscle really has to be used so that you're ready and so that you know, especially for those who have been socialized in order to be more people pleasing and to not say no, it can actually be very scary to say, no, thank you. I I don't want to be touched right now. I know I had an experience once where that very thing happened and I didn't want what the person was offering. It was completely well-intentioned. They said, would you like a hug? I said, no, I'm good. And I kind of hugged myself. And I spent probably the next hour looping, wondering if I had offended the person. And it was totally not from their behavior at all. It was my own stuff around fear of not being liked, fear of coming off as rude or demanding. And so I think just an awareness that those things are in the room is absolutely essential. And you know, for those who have a major trauma history, I think it's really important to have a relationship with a therapist or a therapeutic team way before getting involved in any sort of psychedelic therapies, because psychedelic therapies can be very intense. And there is a risk of reenacting traumatic events. There's a risk of re-traumatization if things move too fast. That's not to scare people, but just to say, you know, when we're working with really powerful substances, we have to treat it like we're playing with fire. You know, we have to be extremely thoughtful and very cautious and understand that there will be inherent risks and really empower the individuals to decide what types of risks they are and aren't comfortable taking on. Yeah. And just to be clear again, that especially applies to people who have significant trauma issues in their life. And often it's the case that they're not even aware of those issues or how those issues are actually affecting them because they're still buried in their unconscious. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And I would say, you know, there's no one single way to identify that, but I would say if there are certain things that when brought up, you sort of react or shut down and say, I'm not talking about that. We don't go there. That's teaching you a lot about where that stuff is and where your protectors are still really active and looking to protect you from the pain of of certain experiences. And so that's not to say that that's always the case, but, you know, dissociation is another piece that I think is really worth exploring and, and understanding more about. Oftentimes that is rooted in traumatic experiences. And and so people who have a difficult time being present or a difficult time feeling their bodies or feeling their emotions, that can also be a sign that there are some things to go back to. And really that is work that 
I think is very, very hard to do alone. I think it needs to happen with the support of a therapist. I think it needs to happen with the support of community and loved ones. And it's not a linear process by any means, but it is just so worth it. It really is. Yeah. And even though there are a fair amount of stories of people with serious trauma issues having miraculous breakthroughs with psychedelics, it is not necessarily the rule. So Mm -hmm. not not to assume that psychedelics in themselves alone are going to solve all our problems. And there's something that you call psychedelic evangelism, which I had, <laughs> I had never heard that term, but, but now it, it makes total sense because anybody who's listened to Terrence McKenna, he, I think you could probably call him a psychedelic evangelist in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think a lot of people who grew up listening to him probably are kind of followers of that kind of religion, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I coined that phrase, though. I, I do remember when it came out of my mouth the first time and I said, oh, feel free to use that. I think that explains a lot of what I'm trying to get at. So credit to whoever said that first. But yeah, you know, I think if we zoom out and just look at how the public's relationship with psychedelics has evolved over the last 50 to 100 years, a lot of what happened during the 60s and 70s had an element of psychedelic evangelism in the counterculture. You know, it wasn't just Terrence McKenna, you know, we had Timothy Leary and others who, and maybe that was an important phase, you know, and I kind of honor it as an important phase, even on the individual level, which I know for me, after I had such a profound experience and could see the differences in my life because I had had an intentional mushroom session, I also had this mentality that's like, put it in the water. <laughs> you know, how do, we, how do we get this healing out to people? And I think at the same time, there are a lot of risks tied to that mentality. In many ways, it assumes that what worked for me will work for everyone else. You know, it kind of misses a lot of the nuance around just the wide spectrum of lived experiences, you know, and and I had someone, a loved one who said to me after my big mushroom experience, I have a loved one who has epilepsy. And I sent over some articles around research that was starting to be done around how psychedelics could be good for the brain. And this person said to me, well, you know, Becca, you can't just throw mushrooms at everyone's mental health problems. <laughs> and I didn't even realize until that was said that that was kind of what I was doing. You know, the other side of that is clearly something must have stuck because for me, I have made this my work. And I, I think there is a way to have a deep conviction about the powers of these medicines and hold that with reverence and also people do have profound healing experiences with psychedelics. They do. It happens all the time. Is that always the case? No. So I think what's most important is to, especially in this moment of enthusiasm and in public hope, I think it's really important to temper that narrative with a narrative of discernment, you know, and nuance. And I think that that's one of the best things that psychedelic advocates can do is to acknowledge that there are situations that are not going to be beneficial for people or that there are contraindications for some people. And to deny that would be to be, you know, a psychedelic evangelist and, oh, well, let's just convert everyone to, you know, how would you say the, the psychedelic religion, so to speak. 
I'm not interested in that at all, you know, just given where I've come from and the way that group think can disempower people. I'm really interested in a future where psychedelics are actually not all that exciting because people understand how to be safe with them because they're widely accessible in a safe way, you know? And what I would love is that you can't look at someone and tell whether they're pro psychedelics or whether they sit in ceremony. I would love for these medicines to get beyond the sort of psychedelic subculture and for people across the political spectrum, across faith traditions to engage with them simply because they're human and because these medicines are are here as our teachers. So that's kind of a long way of saying, you know, I see myself more as a psychedelic enthusiast than a, a psychedelic evangelist. Well, I love that because you actually covered a lot more territory than I even <laughs> asked, but it, but, but it was wonderful. It really gets back to the underlying kind of medicine of the whole thing that is really about guiding people back to themselves, you know, with whatever works to get them there, whether it's a psychedelic substance or not. Mm-hmm. And, but getting back to the psychedelics, since we are living in a deeply dysfunctional culture, which needs tremendous healing and all the help it can get to see outside of our current systems of dominance that has brainwashed pretty much everybody, and at least to some degree has brainwashed everybody. Talk about how psychedelics can help us see beyond these these old systems of dominance and help us to create radical and systemic change. Mm. Mm. Well, you know, this is really the question at the heart of the work that I'm doing with my team at Alma. And I think it will be an exploration for many years because we're posing this question around what does radical systems change look like? And like you said, how can we engage all of the supports available to us to sort of turn this ship for humanity and for this beautiful planet before we can't? And I don't think it's a coincidence that we're seeing this resurgence of interest in psychedelic medicines at a time when we have so many intersecting crises that really threaten everything, really. Beyond, you know, I think the earth will outlive us, but we won't go there right now. So, you know, part of where I'm really excited is questioning this idea that I've heard many times, which is, you know, you take a psychedelic and you get this insight that like, we are all one, which I have also shared. And I I think that that is a hugely important piece to be able to get beyond one's ego and one's immediate lived experience and to commune with someone say unity consciousness, someone say the universe being able to take that really, really wide perspective of the world, of life itself, the nature of reality, that is so beautiful and important. And we can't live in that place because the reality is we live in a world where we are not all one and we are not all having the same lived experience. There is huge discrepancy among class, among race, among marginalizations and not marginalizations where Those are the lived realities that we return to after any psychedelic experience. And so my hope with this sort of thesis around whole medicine is that we take those insights and we allow them to catalyze us towards, as I say, love in action, towards meaningful 
shifts in our immediate realms of influence. And so that's really my hope is that psychedelics will not just be there for the individual to, you know, we don't want to be trapped in the navel gazing period. (laughs) That's sort of like in infancy. And I think we're in our infancy in the psychedelic field. But really, you know, my mentor Claudia Cuentas has a teaching that comes from her people, the Aymara and Quechua people in Peru. And she cites this a lot, which is that the sort of spiritual path is to know oneself in order to heal oneself in order to be of service and that that cycle sort of continues. And so it's not enough to just say, oh, I healed my trauma and now I'm going to go through life hugging trees and understanding that we're all one, but also how do I find my purpose and be of service within that and let that spiral path of life sort of continue onward. And so to me, you know, healing is inherently political. It really is. And when I say political, it's not about right versus left, but it's inherently looking at the places we have been harmed and have pain. And in order to understand our collective pain and trauma, we have to understand the power structures around us and the ways that decisions are made, the ways that resources are allocated, the ways that the land is treated and the waters are treated. These are all things that ultimately human beings are making decisions that set policies that then impact the world around us. And so I think getting away from this sort of what we know as spiritual bypassing, which is like, oh, we just need to transcend. Well, that's a nice idea, but (laughs) those who transcend will be leaving everyone else behind, you know? And so this period of history really is asking us to root down and look with a lot of courage at what's happening around us. And I believe that these medicines can help strengthen us to look more compassionately at the world, to process grief in more meaningful ways, to activate us towards real change, not just, oh, go and vote in your election, but what can I do in my community to create more justice, to create more health and thriving? So I am really passionate that these medicines can support us in making a healthier world. You also talk about how radical presence builds off a grounded understanding of our collective history. And as you address that, could you share your definition of presence? Because it's become such a buzzword these days. Hmm. The way I would define presence is really a compassionate and grounded awareness. And radical presence is not just a grounded, compassionate awareness of this moment in time, but to be able to hold this moment in time and sort of expand outward and hold a compassionate, grounded awareness of the context in which we find ourselves in this moment. So, you know, one great insight from psychedelics is that everything is interconnected. And that seems to me irrefutable at this point. I hope we're not, you know, debating that. But because everything's interconnected, we can see these links. And so if we expand our awareness enough, let's say I'm sitting with someone who's going through a session with someone who Spanish is their first language, their parents moved here to escape some socioeconomic or some cartel related violence. When that person comes in, they are carrying all of that context with them. And when I come to hold space for them, 
I am carrying all of my historical and ancestral context with me, whether it's conscious or not. And so radical presence is asking us to expand our capacity for those things to be in the room because they are whether we see them or not. And the more that we can acknowledge and be aware of those pieces, I think the more healing potential there is and the more we protect, you know, from harm. And I would say that radical presence is not something that's solely for holding space. I really hope that that's something that each of us can develop as a way that we live our lives. And that's not to say that every conversation has to be about, you know, the harms of colonial capitalist patriarchy, you know, like also being able to hold that so many things are true at once and that sometimes it's time to dance. Sometimes it's time to joke around or play with your animals or take a walk in the sunshine. You know, having radical awareness, I think also can free us to see more, to witness not only the pain and the violence and the injustices that have happened, but also the richness of the human experience and the joys and euphoria of being here and being connected and giving ourselves permission to experience that spectrum of life. You know, so I think that's what gets opened up with radical presence. The way I put it is building capacity outward in all directions. And I think that's one thing that the medicines can help us do. It seems like our survival, our very survival, really depends upon our ability to hold these disparate elements at the same time, because we are facing existential crisis. And yet at the same time, we have the capacity to experience, you know, joy and pleasure mm in the world around us in each moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and it's a discipline. And I think this relates to what you talk about and describe as hope. And hope is a, is a very loaded word in our culture. But the way you wrote about it was really wonderful in a kind of multi-dimensional way, like from giving us the space to completely fall apart and rest as we lay like broken on the rocks in despair, mm-hmm. to imagining a future that we can love, even when it feels impossible to get there from where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really why I wanted to end the book with a chapter on hope. Because I think all of us have to grapple with our relationships to hope. And it's not just something we can drum up, you know, especially in light of witnessing things that just prompt so much despair, you know, and at the same time, you know, kind of the metaphor that I use is that, you know, even after forest fires, there are seeds that are then activated and flowers that will pop up on the forest floor because they can now see the sunlight, you know, that tenacious forward motion of life, you know, even in war zones, children are being born, and people are falling in love. And so it's not just imagining things being better. It's acknowledging what's right in front of us, that there is so much beauty. There is so much potential happening around us. And the forces of, you know, destruction and violence and domination don't want us to see that. (laughs) They don't want us to believe that, you know, and so I really believe that hope is not this naive sort of bypassy feeling. It's really something that we tend to together so that we can carry on. And I think that, you know, I'll speak for myself, my times spent in medicine spaces, 
have been so huge for me in nurturing and fostering that hope. Because for me, at this point, I, I feel that no matter what psychedelic I consume, I often end up in a similar place, which is the space of communion and the space of being right here, but also being beyond and transcending these immediate pains and struggles. And so the ability to like root down and rise up at the same time. And again, psychedelics aren't the only vehicle to do that. There's so many things humans have done throughout history to do that. But I think the heart of it is we have to, we, as long as we are alive, we have to find a way to connect with hope. I think it's essential to our spirits. Yeah. And at the end, you present some kind of dreamy questions, like what would it feel like if the world was just, and what would we be doing if the world was just? And mm -hmm. could you talk about why you bring up these questions and why you identify with these questions? Hmm. I'll see if I can without crying. Oh, <laughs> uh, thank you for asking this. You know, when I first heard this question, it hit me in the core of who I am because it made me realize how much of my life has been shaped by trying to navigate around the constraints of an unjust world. And I think that's true probably for all of us to some degree, the constraints of things that we did not consent to and harms that we were born into and in some ways have to perpetuate in order to survive. And when I first heard this question, it was from my dear friend Ismail Ali, who heard it from one of his mentors, who I wish I could credit. It almost felt like an unbearable level of relief that I could imagine. And I thought of my son, my son's 10 years old. And I thought about how, you know, I'm a single parent, but getting by, I know so many of us who are just getting by and the pressures of providing for ourselves and the pressures of, for many people living under systems that are designed to oppress them and designed to keep power and agency from them. And I could feel this sort of blooming within me, which is <laughs> the first thing I imagined was if the world was just, I would be laying under a tree by a stream, eating fruit fresh off the tree that's been warmed by the sun. And just the sense of having landed that that gives me the sense of we're going to be okay, that that gives me, it's something that drives me every day, you know? And so for me, as I've kind of integrated that question of what would I be doing if the world was just, I've been looking at how do I weave in that future reality or that somewhere far off reality into today, not only in the decisions that I'm making to help create a more just world in some small way, but also in channeling that feeling that I have when I think about laying by a river eating sun warmed fruit <laughs> or laughing with my son or petting my cat. Those are things that I can do now and today, even while living in an unjust world. And, you know, by focusing on not having the conditions for thriving readily offered up to us, 
but on finding pockets of thriving anyway, I think is one of the most radical things we can do. It's kind of like not waiting to start living your life after you've retired and made all the money and have all the security, but to find ways to live now and be thinking about the future we're creating while being fully alive and radically present in this moment. And so I think it's important for us to think about those things, not as a condition of finding joy, because will we ever live in a world that is truly just? I can't answer that. But I do know that we can create justice in our homes and in our communities and in ourselves. And that's where change comes from. It's got to start at home and ripple from there. So, yeah, thanks for that question. Yeah, this boils down to something that back when I was doing psychedelics, the universal message I received at the end of each journey when I asked for something that I could bring back with me, and this relates to the way we can relate to this, it's not realistic to wait until we solve all the problems of the world or create a just world before we can live our own lives. Um, the message I received each time was just relax. Mm -hmm. And I've spent the last few decades, you know, integrating that and unraveling the deeper levels of meaning in that. Mm. I'm smiling because that's so relatable. <laughs> I know at one point I say something like, the medicines might say different things to you, but one of them is, you know, stop your fretting and look at that beautiful dragonfly. And I'd love to hear at some point about those layers of meaning to you. Because I know for me, the ability to access my power actually has to do with relieving myself of the weight of the world on my shoulders and finding where I do have agency and giving myself permission to be alive and to love and to not take everything so seriously. One thing that a mentor told me a long time ago was, take what you do seriously and don't take yourself so seriously. And I think for me, what that really speaks to is being connected to purpose and understanding that I am just one drop in an ocean <laughs> and the relief that comes with that. And trusting that things, well, it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to say this, but tr <laughs> trusting that, that in a sense that everything is right on track, despite how insanely dysfunctional everything appears on the outside mm -hmm. and the effect that we actually can have on the world around us on the collective reality when we allow ourselves to rest in joy and whatever brings us joy no matter how simple it may be like as simple as petting our cat or just relaxing into this mm -hmm. very very moment wherever we are with whatever's going on mm -hmm. and trusting that where we are right now is enough, despite, you know, even in the face of our currently seemingly unsolvable existential crises. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I've been chewing on lately and feel like I've come to a whole new understanding and perspective is this issue of how people are still having children. <laughs> I see so many people having not just one child, but having another child 
even in the face of these existential crises. And these are people who are well aware of the existential crises that we're facing and that are just going to be increasing. And mm. for many years, I was thinking, I do not want to bring a child into this world. But just recently, it's become really clear that we need to be bringing a new generation of beings mm. onto this planet because they are the ones who are going to have the fresh perspective and unknown magical ability to deal with the issues that we've been creating for them. Mm. Mm. Got goosebumps. That feels very profound. That's going to stay with me. So for people who are interested in this work that you do with the Alma Institute, how can they uh, find out more about your work and what's involved in it? Because <laughs> to me, it's such a beautiful thing. And there are lots of schools opening up to take advantage of this new field. And mm -hmm. I think we, we need to find safe ways to do this work and to share it and to teach this work. So yeah, tell mm -hmm. us how people can find out more about your work and get involved. Because while reading your book, I kept thinking, oh, if I lived out in Portland, I would be at mm -hmm. your doorstep. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, well, that's so good to hear. Um, yes, yeah, so, you know, there's a few ways to get connected with us. One is to visit almatraining.org. That's our main website. And we have an email list on there. So that's the best way to keep up with how everything's unfolding. Right now, the wait list is growing for the next cohort. We don't know exactly when we will launch it, but it all depends on the growing need and, and having the right people to get trained. So yeah, join our email list. We're also on Instagram at, at Alma Institute. I'm also personally there, which is more just my book stuff and musings and cute pictures of flowers and my child and my cats nowadays. My Instagram is at Rebecca Martinez writes. And yeah, you know, beyond that, for people who want to get involved, we're a nonprofit. So we're always looking for supporters. Right now we're looking to bring this service center into the world. So if people are connected with philanthropists or if people want to contribute in any way, that's always welcome. It's easy to do from our website. And honestly, just share about us, get engaged. We really try to create work that is responsive to community need. So we love to hear from people around what they're experiencing, what they feel would fill a gap in the field. And we, we kind of build off of that. So, yeah. And if you have time, to answer a, a kind of bonus question. <laughs> sure. Um, I'd love for you to talk about consent and the game that you play with your son to build trust around consent and how consent is so important to understand in terms of every area of our lives. And, and mm. you know, in order to build a kind of universal culture of consent. Mm-hmm. Yes. So if it's the game that I'm thinking of, it makes me laugh every time. We invented a game called Mama Gator. So essentially, my son is 10 now. And in the pandemic, when it started, I guess he was six and had a lot of big energy in his body. And so we invented the sort of wrestling game that we would do where essentially I would create like a cage over him with my arms and legs and he would play that he's trapped inside. And in real time, as this started to develop, I learned that 
we needed to negotiate because he's six and could be rough and not always recognize when he's gonna, you know, accidentally smack me in the face or <laughs> otherwise. And so we started having these meta conversations because he wanted to play it all the time. So I say, okay, we can play it, but we can play for a few minutes. We'll set a timer. And this time I don't want you to touch my hair, you know, or what are your boundaries? And he'd say, well, I want you to trap me harder. Don't let me escape so much or let me escape and then pull me back. So there's this meta conversation and negotiation. And it became so fun. We did it for years, though. Every now and again, he asks to play it, but he's getting so big. I actually have to work at it now. (laughs) But all of the micro lessons that I know will translate into his relationships as he gets older, because those skills are the same, regardless of what you're navigating. There's the checking in, there's the asking for permission, there's the tracking if someone is still responding in the way that you expect that they will, or if there's been a shift in the energy. And all those subtle skills, they translate into our intimate relationships, they translate into any relationship where we have a power dynamic, our friendships, professional relationships, and just being high touch people. I think that touch and being in our bodies are, it's not only, as we mentioned before, the site of trauma, it can also be the site of so much joy and healing. So being around a young person with a fresh perspective has been healing for myself too. And for my own inner child to be able to have him set his boundaries and have them honored. To me, that's generational healing, you know? Mm. Well, it's been such a delightful pleasure to talk with you. Likewise. Thank you so much for your thoughtful questions. It's been a joy. That was Rebecca Martinez. She's a Chicana writer and community organizer whose work explores the intersections between collective healing, systems design, and expanded states of consciousness. She's a student of transformative justice, emergent strategy, and somatic abolitionism. She's the founder and executive director of Alma Institute, a nonprofit educational institution that equips students from marginalized communities to become legal psychedelic facilitators. She worked on the Measure 109 campaign that produced the Psilocybin Services Act, the first ever state program to provide community-based legal access to psilocybin services. She served as the advisor to the National Psychedelics Association the American Psychedelic Practitioners Association, and the Plant Medicine Healing Alliance, and is a prominent voice on psychedelic justice. And she's the author of this new book we've been talking about, Whole Medicine, A Guide to Ethics and Harm Reduction for Psychedelic Therapy and Plant Medicine Communities. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, Take good care of yourselves and each other.